Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by Stuart Robson, Oliver Kay, and Mr. Matt Dickinson. We'll be discussing all the latest football action. Up next, we're going to have Manchester United and Liverpool from Old Trafford, Sunderland against Arsenal, and also a look at Big Sam Allardyce and the perception of British managers. One place to start, Old Trafford, Manchester United and Liverpool. Um, a game with, I think, very serious implications. I mean, had United not taken the points, uh, they would have been uh, seven back or, or, or six back on Chelsea. And uh, since 1999, I know they're slow starters, but they've never actually won the title when they've been that far back this early in the season. Um, but of course, it's all a moot point because they are just four points back now. And uh, from Sir Alex Ferguson's perspective, he came out, he spoke of the 3-2 result as a scoreline travesty. And he says they could have won by a cricket score, uh, scoring 10 goals, which I guess wouldn't quite make it a cricket score, but um, <laughs> in these days of 2020, but who's counting? Uh, Dicko, is uh, Sir Alex on to something? Uh, well, I, I, they were the better team. They deserved to win. But I, it's one of the things that those of us who've worked... Um, closely with Ferguson down the years he actually tends to be more graceful in defeat than in victory and I think this um, the last 24 hours you know, showed that up uh, you know I think he was um, uh, needlessly brutal about Liverpool um, you know they, they, they you know, left with some credit um, quite why he wanted to rub their nose in it um, uh, who knows because you know he's got issues with his own team the defence continues to creak Johnny Evans um, I thought uh, got pushed around by Everton the previous week by Cahill um, wobbled again uh, O'Shea has his uh, dubious moments and, and to be honest I don't see Manu winning either of the, the top prizes um, this season unless they deal with those issues pretty urgently Ollie uh, I, I thought Roy Hodgson was his buddy I expected him to patronise uh, Roy Hodgson. Actually, I thought I thought that um, he, in his vise, he, he had a Liverpool manager who would be deferential and so on. And um, I thought I thought he'd be patronising and say, "Oh, well done, Roy," and all this kind of thing. He was actually quite scathing of Liverpool's performance and, and particularly of Torres. And to be honest, I was, I was very surprised that Hodgson didn't at least have a bite back or at least stand up for his player when um, when. Um, Ferguson was accusing Torres of, of cheating. I mean, I, I, I can see uh, Hodgson's his manner in post-match press conferences is, is is to avoid controversy at any um, at any cost. But when um, 
when your star player is being accused of cheating by the opposition manager, you would think you might at least stand up for him. I was slightly surprised by that. Stuart, hey, we, 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 people talk about mind games and all this stuff and the back and forth between managers. I mean, you know, you you've been around managers. I mean, mm. do they? Is, is, is this necessary? Does this mean anything? Do we in the media read too much, you know, of comments that Sir Alex made just minutes after an emotional win? Or is he trying to send messages and should Hodgson be somehow firing back? Or? Well, I don't think Hodgson should be firing back. I think that he did very well just to ignore it because the only reason it works is if the, if the other manager starts arguing back with you. And that's exactly what Arsene Wenger's done in the past with Sir Alex Ferguson. That's what Mourinho's done. Mourinho's had the better of Alex Ferguson at times. I never think Arsene Wenger gets the better of, of Ferguson because Arsene Wenger never carries it through. But I think uh, what, what Ferguson does I think he knew that his team were by far the best side then when they got back to to all Liverpool he, he didn't feel that was a fair reflection on the game and I think he just wanted to tell everybody that his team were far better than Liverpool and Liverpool are going to struggle this season which I think they are Well, for, from where I was sitting I mean I, I, I kind of agree with, with with Sir Alex I mean in the sense that uh, until the, 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 the until Liverpool scored you know got back into it with you know, let's face it, an acceleration into space by from, from Torres, which uh, and a penalty and 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 a free kick, individual incidents. Liverpool had shown me very very little. Um, I, thought, I thought they were really really poor. Uh, am I wrong, Dicko? No, I'm not. To say that you know, there's no doubt United uh, deserve to win. I think. Um, I mean, Tony Cascarino makes the point this morning, doesn't he, about um, you know the the, the 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 foolishness in his eyes of starting with with one up, and and clearly when um, Liverpool went to two strikers, they suddenly did look more offensive. But then you know, I, I, I can understand the rationale for Hodgson's um, selection. Uh, poor kickoff. Clearly, you're taking a risk when Torres still trying to recover confidence and proper fitness if you only use him uh, effectively as a lone striker but you know there, there, there was there was logic to that um you know Liverpool, united dominated but you know there's no no great shock about that liverpool are really finding their feet under a new manager and as as stuart says it's going to be uh, it's going to be a, a, a long, hard road for them. But I mean, did anyone expect anything different? Well, I got a question here, and, and anybody jump in and give me an answer on this one because all summer long it's been, you know, Joe Cole, he'll now be unleashed behind the striker and blah, 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 blah. And Gerard needs to play in midfield as if playing attacking midfield isn't really midfield. Um, so what does he do? He plays Gerard in that in, in that deeper position, which I think is wrong, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But then ahead of him he puts Raul Merilish, who's who's not an attacking central midfielder. I understand he had Jovanovic on the bench. Couldn't, couldn't he put play Jovanovic and, and, and play Joe Cole behind the striker as supposedly he was gonna do all season long? Well I think everyone talked about Torres playing up front by himself. If you if you don't play with one up front, you're gonna be outplayed in midfield. But what you need is your wide players and your midfield players to be able to support quickly. And Jovanovic was the ideal player because he can he, he plays almost in an inside left position. So he could have supported Torres when, when Liverpool had the ball he could have then dropped back in to stop O'Shea trying to get forward which isn't too much of a worry if O'Shea's getting forward because he's not the key player for Manchester United's attacking play but you need midfield players to go and join you need midfield players that can pick out a pass Gerrard does that when he plays behind the main striker you know every time Gerrard plays badly everybody says he's playing in the wrong position there must be a right position for Steven Gerrard and he needs to be able to play in every position you know when he plays on the left hand side for England he should be good because he doesn't actually play wide left he, he comes in field and plays behind the main striker exactly what everyone says he should play when he plays as the holding midfield player or, or a deeper player sometimes he's not disciplined enough so he doesn't do his defensive work but he can still get forward from that position and he can play behind the main striker so I think they've got to find uh, I think he's got to get the best out of Steven Gerrard and people have got to keep stop to, well, stop talking about Steven Gerrard he's not the he's not the be all and end all of Liverpool 
I thought Hodgson's eleven was actually the right one yesterday. I, I thought I thought they set up in in the right way, given that apparently his, his reservation about playing um, Morales further back, you know, in, in the Gerrard position, as it were, is that you know he, he's still getting scripts with the Premier League. Would it have been right to put Paulson and um, Morales in a midfield together? You know, in, in, you know, the Morales' first start um, in the Premier League against Manchester United. I can see the logic there. I think the problem was really one of attitude and, and approach rather than personnel. I, I, th- I thought they never really showed the um, the belief that they, that, that they could take the game to United. I thought they showed very little um, by way of adventure, even when they had the ball. And I thought they defended. I thought they were comfortable as a half-time approach. But, but you know, th- th- there's a lack of quality, and I think there's a lack of belief as well. Dimitar Berbatov um, scores a hat trick. Uh, I thought thoroughly outplayed Wayne Rooney and mm-hmm. uh, outshone everybody else. Uh, Stuart, the obvious narrative here is okay. So they spent a lot of money for him. They've waited two years, and now this season, six goals in five games. He's finally coming good. Is that a little bit harsh on Berber? Well, I think what he's now got is confidence. You know, any, whenever a player goes to a new club, they, they need to feel loved. I don't think Berbatov has ever ever felt loved. He didn't start his, his campaign at Manchester United particularly well, or his, his career at Manchester United particularly well. The crowd then sort of were indifferent towards him. The manager didn't play him every week. And once you start getting into that rut, you don't feel confident yourself. Now he's playing with When you're confident, you, you jump almost a foot higher. You run two yards quicker. You want to be involved more. When the ball comes, you're not thinking about miscontrolling it. You're thinking about where your next pass is, what you can do, uh, creativity, uh, what, create, what you can create out of the situation and that's exactly what Berbatov is doing now he's a, he's a can be a great player when he's full of confidence and he's now full of confidence Dicko do you buy this this love argument because I kind of get the sense that the reason he's getting love now is because Wayne Rooney's having some issues off the pitch and they've realised Michael Owen can contribute and Kiko Makeda is still a teenager well I think it's going to be interesting I mean you know he's he's at the start of the season, maybe you know that maybe there's you know, been discussion that he's going to be involved more, and he's he's risen to it, um, and you know it's been a sort of virtuous circle at the moment, but uh, you know a circle that might uh, come to you know be broken if uh, and when the United start playing games against the teams that you know, Fergie traditionally goes four five one against. I mean, then he's you know if Rooney's back in good form, then there's going to be some hard selection. You know, decisions to be made. So that, that you know, that's at the moment. You know, the Manu generally on a roll. Fergie's playing the two strikers, um, and everything is slotting nicely into place. But yeah, you know, say we, we're very used to him playing four-five-one uh, against um, you know the tough European games and, and the top Premiership sides, and that's that is when uh, life will get interesting. But could Rooney not play the position that he played for England in the last couple of games, where he yeah, plays much deeper and becomes could- a third midfield player? Well, it could, it could do, although, but you know, but, and, and obviously Fergie's played him wide um, in the sort of you know four five one four three three, whatever you want to call it. But it, you know, it, it could be the case. But it, you know, Fergie traditionally has you know played three proper midfield players in there against the tough teams. But you know, because he doesn't have a Roy Keane anymore, and you know, he's played Fletcher, Carrick, and Anderson, or you know, a, a combination of those sort of players. So whether whether he will drop Rooney deep enough and regard him as as capable of doing that and holding, you know, bolstering the midfield. But, you know, so I think at the moment he's on a pleasant role and, and great and it's good to see Berbatov, um, you know, showing those skills and scoring great goals like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think this is necessarily the narrative of the rest of the season. Stuart, just about um, Berbatov's overhead kick, uh, I'm assuming you either have scored goals like that or certainly come much more close to no. scoring goals like that than the rest of us have. Um, I, 
I thought it was a nice goal, but then, you know, yesterday I spoke to uh, a, a Spanish professional footballer who said that it looked good, but technically not actually the most difficult thing in the world to do because the most, most difficult part was actually when, when he put it up for himself and then the rest of it, his body weight's carrying him backwards and it's just a question of getting it in the right general direction. Is that a bit harsh? A little bit harsh. I mean, he's, he's, first of all, he's, you've got to throw your body out the way. That, that's the first thing. So you've got to get your foot high enough to, to get over the ball. And what he did, he didn't try and hit it too hard. So he just made a good connection. That's all he concentrated on was making a good connection. And it was it was good enough and powerful enough to beat, and it was in the right position. But you don't aim for a corner or aim to hit the underside of the bar. You just aim it in a general direction and make sure your technique is good enough. And that's what Berbatov's got, good technique. And finally, we wouldn't be talking about Liverpool uh, without talking about uh, our friend Tom Hicks and Perslow and RBS and picks and refinancing and all that good stuff. Um, bizarre weekend where, where, where first we had Hicks talking about buying, uh, supposedly talking about buying out uh, George Gillette's stake, uh, now supposedly trying to get refinancing. Um, Ollie, since you live closer to Anfield than, than any of us, can you maybe just tell us simply, is this good or bad for Liverpool fans? I think if, if Hicks keeps hold of the club it, it, it's extremely bad because he's shown that he, he doesn't have the means either financially or, or, or the emotional commitment to, to invest anything in, in, in the club I mean he, he wants to keep hold of it purely so that he can sell it at a, a higher price as he sees it later on so it, it, I mean I, I think it will be awful for Liverpool if, um, if Hicks is able to keep hold of it the board feel likewise they want to uh, they want to block this at, at, at any cost. But what is not certain still is what would happen if uh, if he doesn't do. It? You know who, who would buy the club then? And um, we um, our friends in uh, China and Hong Kong are presumably still in the background. But I mean he, this bid, which is I mean uh, that, that that bid, which is seen as a sort of most friendly, most um, constructive of, of of the bids that's been around the last year or so. I mean. It, Nobody really knows what what they would do if they bought it. So, I mean, to me, it looks a a really bleak situation for Liverpool. Let's move on. Sunderland and Arsenal. Uh, I thought this was an interesting game because um, it was a one-run draw and uh, both goals rather fortuitous. But um, I think we learned something about Arsenal, did we not, Stuart? What do you think, mate, you learned about Arsenal then? What I learned about Arsenal is this, right? And guys, please back me up if you feel appropriate. We've been sold the line for years. Arsenal are soft. Arsenal don't have leadership. Arsenal are a feat. Arsenal are camp. Um, Arsenal without Sesk are nothing. So they're playing away from home. They take the lead with a lucky goal. Sesk goes off. There's no Robin Van Persie there. There's no mm-hmm. Thomas Vermaelen there. The closest thing that, you know, go to the, the closest thing Arsenal have that approaching uh, a leader Alex Song the supposed hard man he gets himself sent off and then they manage to hang in there until the very end and in, in a game which you know if we believe but the stereotype they were lost to, if Arsenal want to win the title they shouldn't be just hanging in there against Sunderland because I thought it was Arsenal's worst display for the first 60 minutes that I've seen for a little while 
They were outplayed by Sunderland. They were second to the ball. They were outmuscled. They were outplayed by Sunderland. They hardly created a chance. The goal that they did score was a freak. And it was only when they went down to 10 men and suddenly Nasri and Rosicki started to take control of the game. That's when they played well. Kossielny did well when the ball was played in the box. But I felt, and I'm not sure what game Alan Shearer was watching at the weekend when I listened to his punditry, when he said that Arsenal were in complete control. Arsenal were never in control of this game. You always felt that Sunderland were going to score at some point. I thought it was Arsenal's worst display for for for, uh, for six minutes. And I'm interested to see that uh, that Danielson, their midfield player, says, and this is a worry, for me, Arsenal are the best team. If you look at Barcelona, we play just like them. He's forgetting one thing. Barcelona pressed the ball better than anybody else in world football. Arsenal still haven't got a defensive strategy when they haven't got the ball. And that's the problem that Arsene Wenger's going to face over the next few months. Has he got a defensive strategy that's going to stop the opposition scoring? Dick, am I overplaying this whole uh, uh, sort of character and steel and we won't get pushed around argument the way Stuart seems to suggest? Uh, I think a bit. Not, I mean, Arsene, Arsene's um, you know, banging the same drum as you, isn't he? Saying, you know, we've learned, we're, we're, you know, they are clearly a bit older. Um, some of them a little bit, you know, more developed uh, mentally and physically and, and, and maybe. I'm with Stuart. I just, I, I see the familiar scenario unfolding. I mean, clearly, um, yeah, the, 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 the team, the team is evolving with, you know, different signings with, with, you know, Shamak. Um, with Wilshire being promoted, but I, I, you know, I just see the same near miss, um, and as Stuart says, the same surrender of games that, that, that they shouldn't be because because they don't have um, that, that defensive strategy that Stuart mentions. Ali, they do have a they, they do seem to have a, a, a more uh, sort of a stronger will, if you like. Uh, if you look at the games, um, you look at the game at Liverpool where they forced that very late equaliser, which. Although it was a fluke, it was—I mean, it, it had come from 30 minutes of, of pressure on the Liverpool goal. Um, if you look at—I um, mean, if, if you look at the way they played, for the, you know, for, for, for a portion of the game after losing Song um, on Saturday, I think they did show uh, character. As, as you say, they didn't show an awful lot of the quality for which they're better known. But they did concede the goal, which is um, which is why we can't say, "Oh, Arsenal are suddenly um, are, are suddenly." Uh-huh. Something that they weren't before. That shows. I mean, that shows, shows how sort of capricious it is. Really. I mean, if if, um, if Ben hadn't scored, if, if Clichy hadn't attempted that poor clearance, I mean, we, we would be talking differently. But that's all, isn't it? Because what we're talking about is Arsenal winning the title. Because yeah. they're, they're 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 an exceptional team. They're a great team. Wenger's done a great job on their creativity and, and flair and all those sort of things. But what's going to make the difference between them being a second or third or fourth team to winning the Premier League? And when you look at Chelsea, I can't see they've got too many weaknesses. When I look at Arsenal, you can still see they've got frailties and they still look vulnerable when things are going against them. I do still wince a bit. I mean, you know, I understand where Arsenal's coming from and have been a great supporter of him on many many issues uh, on many occasions but the, when he still sort of talks with that slight air of sort of moral high horse about it of sort of Arsenal being you know a superior force um, just because of the way they play the game I, I, I sometimes just feel it gives his players it, it's the wrong thing to be saying to his players instead of sort of getting them to just knuckle down and accept the bad breaks they, they sort of you know get get the sort of sense of oh the world's against us and it's not fair well, not, I, I think the more, I, the more he does that the more teams will play on it the more well, exactly he moans enough. about the and physical the more, side the of people, own, the more the they're more going to do it. Yeah, and the more his own players will, you know, sort of develop, still develop this sort of you know, complex that um, the world's not fair rather than just, you know, accepting, accepting it and getting on with it. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I, I want to stick up for Sunderland a little bit here, mm-hmm. and not just because George Culkin told me to do so, but um, I look at the team they put out there, and okay, Lee Catamol suspended, mm-hmm. and maybe if he had been there, but... Compared to last year, when you had Catamol and, and, and Sana in the first half of the, uh, the season, you know, running around, kicking everybody in sight, um, the, I thought they went out there to play football. Um, and, and, you know, and, and well, yeah, of course, it was a 4-5-1 system, and I mean, we, we can debate that. But you had Welbeck and, and, and El Mohamadi get, getting forward. Henderson can pass the ball. Riveros can pass the ball. Malbron can pass the ball. I, I I thought they went out there and they put on a, out, a decent display. They outplayed Arsenal in midfield. Wilshire was caught on the ball time and time again, you know, probably three or four times in dangerous situations. Song was caught on the ball. Um, Mal Bronk looked an exceptional player in the first half, dribbling away from people. El Muhammadi won every ball in the air. That's why Sunderland had so many, so or could, was able to keep the pressure on in, in Arsenal's half because every goal kick he must have won, and I'm not exaggerating, 15 headers. And to I mean, be fair, he was jumping against Gail okay, Clichy as a but girl's then, name but and as a then Smurf. They put Song out against um, El, I can't even say El Mohamadi. Yeah, that's him. And he still won headers against him. They put the centre half out again. He still won headers against him. He was outstanding. He went past people. He got crosses in. I thought they looked a very good team for 60 minutes until Steve Bruce panicked a bit and started to make substitutions and they lost their team shape then. And that's when Arsenal started to get back into the game. And their two players, Rosicki and Nasri, and Rosicki, apart from his penalty, had been excellent this season, started to try and control the match. Uh, final point here because uh, uh, we love talking about Arsene Wenger and referees. Um, Dicko, did he have any argument at the end of the game when he went and jumped up and down and remonstrated with the assistant referee and pointed over to his watch about the timing of the uh, uh, <coughs> of Darren Bent's equalizer? No, I didn't see it. I mean, the fact is that you know when well, you didn't see it. I didn't, hey, <laughs> like Arsene, I didn't see it. I, no, I, I mean, the fact is, you know, we, we just go round and round. When the, the amount of time signalled is the minimum that's going to be played, you know, I mean, there's only the referee's got his blinking watch. Um, no, it, it's, it's uh, again, it's a cop, it's a cop out for, for for managers. And um, well, to, to repeat my earlier point, it's it's. I just hate the way that these sort of just become. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a story, but they've sort of become sort of raging controversies when we should tell some of these managers to to get back in their box. That's why we should introduce real time to football. No more time wasting, no more cheating, and no more injury time controversies. In the debate this week, we're going to talk a little bit of Big Sam because um, I, it's it's amazing. I, I think it was Friday afternoon. Um, word comes through these quotes from Big Sam where he, he basically says that if he were managing a bigger club like Real Madrid or, or, or Inter Milan, um, he'd win the, the double or treble um, year after year. Now, I, I thought like, oh, you know, there's that Twitter account. Um, I think it's called The Big Sam. And I thought like, oh, this must be coming from there. Um but it wasn't, <clears throat> and, and and I went and, and I got Big Sam's quotes, and, and and I tried to see if he was being taken out of context or if he had been deliberately misquoted by the uh, soft Southern press that he rails against. And um, 
no, he hadn't been. And he followed this up on, on Sunday in, uh, with his mouthpiece, uh, or in his mouthpiece, rather, the News of the World, with uh, where he has a, a big page. Um, and he talked about, um, he sort of tried to explain himself and said that, you know, he's seen as sort of antiquated and Neanderthal. And in reality, he's quite sophisticated. And, and Darshan Benger's not a very nice man and so on. And I, I want to throw this out there to talk about the perceptions. I mean, I got the sense when I came to this country, uh, uh, you know, as a foreigner, initially it did seem to me that, oh, look, you know, Arsene Wenger's the professor because he wears glasses and, mm. and things like that. And there was this idea that foreign managers are just more sophisticated and so on. Um, I, I think that narrative has kind of gone a little bit. I mean, I, I, I don't think that big people think Big Sam is necessarily unsophisticated because he's he's English, but maybe it's well. I, I think Sam is a, is a problem of the FA of of ten fifteen years ago. The FA decided uh, to almost go away from coaching, and we've got to we've got to get sports science involved more. You've got to be you know PowerPoint presentations. You've got to get people in the classroom and show exactly. Well, that's not tactics. That's not being sophisticated. That's gone too far. You know, you go around the academies, and it's why we, I don't think we're producing any really world-class players. And if you look down, I mean, there, I know there's a piece from Trevor Brookin in the, in the Times today, but, you know, I disagree with that completely. I don't think we are producing world-class players. And the reason we're not producing world-class players is because too much time is spent doing in the academies doing speed drills and sports science and psychology and not enough coaching and tactical work on the training field because we haven't got the coaches in this country. And Sam, could hide away from his coaching ability by saying he's a sports scientist and he uses uh, psychology as the main part of, of getting the best out of his players. That's only part of it. That should only be 10-15%. The rest of it should be your coaching and your tactical analysis and your technical quality and Sam Hallardyce hasn't got that. Ollie, uh, it, I mean, does Sam Hallardyce spend all his time doing that as Stuart seems to be implying or does he actually, in your opinion from what you see on the pitch, I mean, do, 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 is he sophisticated? Does he have a sense of tactics? Is he even an archetype for the English manager? Because I'm not sure he is. I think he's, I mean, I'm, I'm going to risk a, a backlash here. I, I think his, his tactics are sophisticated but the football isn't. The, the football is, you know, what people call Neanderthal. It's, it's, it's long balls, often, you know, it, it's aggressive, it's getting in people's faces. It's the football that a lot of people, in particular Arsene Wenger, um, don't like to see. But it is very considered. He puts more thought into, into tactics, into set pieces, into different ways of playing to stop different players playing. And, you know, a lot of the time it's negative, but... I, I, I don't think, if you look at Bolton uh, under Allardyce, you look at Blackburn under Allardyce, and I'm going to discount Newcastle because he, he, he never really got his feet under the table there, they always look like a team that have done an awful lot of work on the training ground. Now, maybe that's his coaches, but that's the case with a lot of top managers that, 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 they, do, that they, they, they let their coaches do the coaching. Even the, 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 the fairly um, unsavoury business the other day with uh, El Hajjouf, um, fouling Mark Shorts and now that is the epitome really of, uh, of anti-football and all that kind of thing but it did at least look like something that has been worked on the training ground now if you call that cynical then yes of course it was and nobody likes to see it but there is a sophistication to that even if it's uh, highly cynical and um, highly ugly It's um, he, he's a guy who puts a lot of thought in a lot of it, his stuff is quite Machiavellian and, and underhand in, in, in some ways but it's the kind of stuff that everyone was praising Jose Mourinho for when um, John Terry was blocking off defenders at set pieces for Chelsea it's, um, I'm not saying he's the you know Lancastrian equivalent of uh, Mourinho but he, he, 
have his strengths, and it's not just a guy who's obsessed with PowerPoint presentations. He, they work on things to, to come off on the on the field, and more often than not, they do. Dicko. Allardyce has proved himself very capable at, at, at getting sort of underdog teams to, uh, as you said, Ollie, earlier, to get, get in faces. But, I mean, it is a whole different challenge um, to, 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 to make your team uh, sort of sophisticated attacking-wise and to, to, to play with that adventure. I mean, and even um, O'Neill and Moyes, I think, you know, if you're talking sort of British managers, should be way, way ahead of Sam if you're talking about being given opportunities among the big clubs. And even they would still have, you know, a decent amount to prove to show that they've got that uh, uh, that that quality and that that understanding of of, of flair and enterprise and adventure. Um, I'm not saying they're not capable of it, but I, I, you know, they've, they've they've still got it all to show. Okay, well, we're going to wrap this up with with a little game here. Okay, let's pretend that God comes down to earth and decides to take Arsene Wenger, Sir Alex Ferguson, and Carlo Ancelotti away from their respective clubs. And commissions each of you to suggest uh, a, a British manager for those for those three clubs. Let's start with Dicko. Who do you see as a Manchester United manager? Who do I see? Well, I'd I'd, I'd, I'd like to see Martin O'Neill given a chance, but uh, Arsenal. Um, Arsenal. Um, well, Bruce Rioch deserves another chance, surely. I mean, he's you know unfinished business. No, I, yeah, we're, we're scratching. I mean, we don't produce good coaches. That's Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea um, uh, let's give Steve McLaren that one he's uh, trying to bring him back and rehabilitate him Ollie people like Martin O'Neill and, and David Moyes as, as, as Matt says should be get, you know, should should be in a position to get to get those jobs um, at some stage which I think is fair enough to be fair to Martin O'Neill he was in the position to uh, at least interview for the England job and then decided not to um, and maybe his career might have taken a, a slightly different path um, but Steve McLaren was once interviewed for the Chelsea job there you go Nugget I was unfamiliar. when was this? Uh, that was pre um, I think he had a chat with Kenyon I'm trying to think it must have been pre Scolari was it or pre I mean it's going it was going was back it for the while. manager's job or, or sort of kicking yeah around. I think so yeah and um, well originally there was because there was thought of him coming in with Sven when that was kicking around and then um, I'm pretty sure we had another chat with him um, I'm trying they've, they've had so many vacancy periods I'm trying to remember which one it was Did but uh, Oddly enough, they didn't go with it. This sounds extraordinary because if it was um, if it was post Mourinho, then that would be sometime in his England tenure. And um, if I just if I just inadvertently <laughs> revealed a bombshell, <laughs> bombshell <laughs> news. <laughs> Breaking news! There's something about Dicko and England managers, isn't there? Uh, Stuart, you get the final word on this. I. It's interesting because the, the names that came up most often and were. David Moyes and Martin O'Neill, and you seem to suggest earlier that if either one of those two guys was, were managing United, Arsenal, or Chelsea, um, those teams wouldn't be playing the well, way they are now. No, I, but I would go with David Moyes for one of the jobs because I'd like to see him given a chance because he hasn't been one of these managers that always complained about a lack of money. You know, he, he's done the best with, with the squad he's got. I didn't think they played any sort of creative football. A couple, of, they were they were very much a long ball team. He has started to develop some some technical players at, at Everton. They've started to change the game, albeit second bottom of the table. Glenn Hoddle, there's a name for you, because I think he's an excellent coach. I, I, he did wonderful things. He was innovative at Swindon. He was innov innovative at Chelsea. He didn't 
get it quite right for England but I still think he's a much better coach than the, the people you're talking about much better uh, than, than Martin O'Neill who, who when I went to Aston Villa first game of the season I spoke to a couple of players they were pleased to, to, to see the back of Martin O'Neill they said his, his coaching was antiquated and I'd go for Steve McLaren because Steve McLaren was uh, until he got the England job the best coach in England I'd seen him work many many times and he really was a very good technical coach and he could bring the best he did a lot of work for Manchester United when they won the, the, the triple and he's a good coach but he got uh, he, he just got it wrong for England because he, he worried too much about his, uh, his uh, pr- the press and his own self-publicity that's the thing he got wrong not his coaching well, I'm going to wrap it up by pointing out that not one person has mentioned uh, Alex McLeish here and uh, uh, also the fact that David Moyes perhaps the most oft-mentioned names I'm a big fan as well is currently second bottom. Time now for what my producer, in a very silly way, keeps calling uh, off the fence, even though it makes no sense whatsoever, and I like to call quick hits. Manchester City grabbed three points at Wigan, winning 2-0, but there are rumors of a bust-up between Roberto Mancini and Emmanuel Adebayor. Ollie, uh, what more do you know, and can City compete without the big Togolese? Well, I, I made the point on, uh, on here a couple of weeks ago that Obviously, Adebayor had stayed with City um, after the transfer window closed. I made the point that if he wasn't going to be playing every week, I thought he would be as, as big a problem as, um, as Robinho or, or, or Craig Bellamy were uh, perceived to be at the time. I don't think he's somebody who's great or good, at least, if, he, if, he's, if he's playing every week, if, if he's got his manager's confidence. But I, I think he's... Um, I think he's some- Sorry for those who missed out. The bell has been replaced by this rather attractive and annoying uh, duck call. So if you stray over the 25 seconds in your answer, then you get the duck. Chelsea crushed Blackpool to make it five wins in five in the Premier League with an absurd goal difference to boot. Uh, Stuart, how much does it matter that they haven't played any of the so-called big clubs yet? Well, I still think Chelsea are the best team in the league because the team that wins the league have to cope with anything the opposition throws. If they want to play a, a hard battle, Chelsea can battle with them. If they want to play a footballing game, Chelsea can out, outpass them. And they, whatever the opposition, when they press the ball, Chelsea can play around them. If they drop deep, Chelsea have enough movement to create chances. I think Chelsea will win the league this year and without losing in more than two games. Where were all those people who's talked about how Ancelotti was rubbish because he'd only won one Serie A title? Hmm. Spurs come from behind to defeat Wolves 3-1, but they need a sterling performance from one Alan Hutton to do it. Uh, Dicko, why can't Hutton get a game? And could maybe could he maybe be the right-footed version of Gareth Bale, a guy who gets ignored for months and suddenly becomes a world beater? Uh, why can't he get a game? Because, uh, well, I don't know how he read that, because his uh, defensive work's not good enough. He switches off, he doesn't concentrate. I mean, it, part of his problem, he was 9 million, I think it was, from Rangers. Uh, he wasn't particularly keen to move in the first place either, so he was overpriced, uh, didn't settle great. Can he become the next Gareth Bale? I doubt it. Um, and would he get more games? Uh, well, uh, no, I think he'll be still remain second or third choice. 25 seconds on the dot. That's why Matt Dickinson is a professional. Hate to pick on referees, but in fact, I love it. But uh, this weekend was a real stinker. And I won't even mention Lee Mason at Stoke, who was appalling for the few of us who actually watched that game. Ollie, who made the biggest blunder? Andre Mariner not noticing Marwan Fellaini doing a David Hay on Mike Williamson? Or was it Anthony Taylor who failed to spot El Hadjou flattening Mark Schwarzer? Not once, but twice. Well, as I said earlier, the um, the, the, the Jew 
incident was fairly surreptitious. It was probably hard to see, at least the first time. He should have been um, he should have been looking out for it the second game, uh, the second time I think after the Fulham players protest. But to me, the um, the one that uh, Mariner missed at Goodison Park was was just blatant. It was Fellaini turning around and clocking Mike Williamson, and he's a very lucky boy. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the FA um, have a word retrospectively. Okay, firing back. Also 25 seconds on the dot. Very impressive, gentlemen. Robert Green's nightmare in goal continues for West Ham in their 1-1 draw at Stoke. Stuart, uh, how does a player suddenly lose it so badly? And please don't say it's just confidence because those of us who didn't play professional football don't understand that concept. Somebody would, and I would certainly say, you can't lose something you never had. I've never said that Robert Green was a good goalkeeper. I've seen him play many, many times for West Ham. I've been to Upton Park on on numerous occasions, and every time I go, he makes at least one blunder. It might not always cost a goal, but I don't think he's a good goalkeeper. I said before the World Cup, he shouldn't even be in the England squad. Okay, but he's nowhere near as bad as he is now, is he? One match of the day pundit said, and I quote, we don't know much about him, unquote. But I have a feeling, um, Dicko, that you have a little more to say about Hatem Ben Arfa, who scored a stunning goal to help Newcastle defeat Everton. How much of an upgrade is he? Uh, well, he's been capped at every French level since uh, since schoolboy. Um, uh, that was Alan Shearer you were talking about, uh, not, not knowing a lot. I mean, he should have known that. He should have known the fact that... Um, yeah, for, for 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 Newcastle certainly he should be uh, he should be a real force this season. Um, he comes with a bit of baggage. He's caused a few ruptures with teammates, but uh, a good signing. Well, I mean, I mean to be fair, we probably can't blame Alan Shearer for not knowing much about Newcastle. Maybe he doesn't have much interest in them, or isn't really a fan, or doesn't read up about the new signings. Uh, Gab, after a string of one-sided results in match day one, there are calls to revamp the Champions League and turn it back into a knockout competition. Having read your column today, I think I know where you stand, but please, since we all love the sound of your voice, why don't you tell us again? Yeah, I'm debating whether I should read my column again uh, out loud, because it's only 700 words or so, but uh, no, in a nutshell, guys... The Champions League is not broke. There is no need to fix it. That would be the Europa League that needs revamping. Fact of the matter is, uh, it's a great way to redistribute money to clubs in smaller countries. uh, And uh, interest is actually very high, even though some people in England might be bored with it. I think, generally speaking, uh, the the most deserving teams eventually win it. And, And I think, by and large, people forget that the past wasn't always great. That's all we've got time for today, but you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find news, you'll find gossip, you'll find analysis, you'll find our web chats. Uh, uh, mine is every Monday around 1 o'clock. Uh, that's UK time, of course. Ollie K does one too, which is very, very popular. You can also follow me and Ollie on Twitter, as well as many other uh, Times writers, including Matt Dickinson and James Ducker and George Calkin, who I think is probably the most talented of the lot. But we also want to hear from you, so please, uh, you can email us at gamepodcast at timesonline.co.uk. That's gamepodcast at timesonline.co.uk. Till next week, bye-bye.